This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, it's one of Shakespeare's least popular comedies, All's Well That Ends Well. In delivering my son from me, I bury a second husband. I have forgot him. My imagination carries no favor in it but Bertram's. Knowest thou not, Bertram, what she has done for me? Yes, my good lord, but never hope to know why I should marry her. Who shuns thy love, shuns all his love in me. Strangers and foes do sunder and not kiss. Here I quit him. He knows himself my bed he hath defiled. And at that time, he got his wife with child. Dead though she be, she feels her young one kick. So there's my riddle. One that's dead is quick. The king's a beggar. Now the play is done. All is well ended if this suit be won. As always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Roger that. T-minus one minute and counting. All is rotten in the state of France. The king is dying of a fistula and only one person can save him. Helena, the wily daughter of a dead physician. Without much explanation, it happens off stage. Helena cures the king and receives her reward, marriage to whomever she likes. Unfortunately, the person Helena likes is Bertram, the Count of Versilian, and Bertram definitely does not like her. Railroaded into marriage, Bertram goes off to war in Italy, abandoning Helena and swearing he'll never recognize his marriage unless she can get herself pregnant with his child. Depressed, Helena goes into a pilgrimage, but her journey's interrupted when she stops off in Italy and learns Bertram is courting Diana, the daughter of a local widow. After applying with Diana, Helena substitutes herself for Diana in the bedroom and sleeps with Bertram. Then she fakes her death, so when Bertram returns to France, there can be a big reveal. She can humiliate him again, and he finally has to accept his marital duties. Through it all, there's a subplot involving the braggart Parolis, who is revealed to be a coward after a kidnapping that is really a practical joke perpetuated by his brothers-in-arms. Carol Bloom remarked that All's Well That Ends Well is the Bard's most underappreciated comedy, and I'd only add that the reason it's underappreciated is that it's not really very funny. Despite being well-written at times, the play has not aged well and suffers from a severe lack of charm. Most people don't seem to notice this, and those who do attempt a staging try to play it as a poor man's much-do-about-nothing, as if here again we have a pair of warring lovers who couldn't be better suited to one another if only they'd realize it for themselves. But this is hardly the case. Bertram is, to put it mildly, an ass, and has few redeeming features. Helena sadly realizes the truth too late, but by then she is married and can do nothing but reap what she has sown. The ending of the play is a far cry from that of Much Ado About Nothing with its double wedding, and even the King of France seems to acknowledge that this isn't the happy ending the audience was expecting when they walked into the door. All yet seems well, and if it ends so meet, the bitter past, more welcome is the sweet. Our tendency to classify Shakespeare's plays as one thing or another, comedy, tragedy, history, often makes our interpretation of characters rather limited. We expect every tragic hero to be a Hamlet, every comedic heroine to be a Beatrice. Because of this, interpreters of All's Well That Ends Well, desperate to pigeonhole the play as a romantic comedy, invariably twist themselves into theatrical gymnastics as they try to paint Helena as this scrappy heroine of a 17th century version of Pride and Prejudice. This is an impossible task. Everyone goes on and on about how awful Bertram is, but how many attack Helena for what she is? I mean, here is a girl who blackmails a man into marrying her, pursues him across Europe, 
commits sexual assault on him, fakes her death, humiliates him in front of the king, and then blackmails him again into accepting her. Most people ask why Helena should ever love Bertram. The real question is why he, or an audience, would ever fall in love with her. All's Well That Ends Well is a play whose chief concern is sex and war, juxtaposing the cruelty we enact on the battlefield with what occurs in the bedroom. If this sounds familiar, it's because Shakespeare explored a similar theme in Troilus and Cressida, though here it is far more focused. Shakespeare introduces us to his subject via Parolis, the play's cowardly braggart, who follows nimbly in the steps of Sir John Falstaff. Sadly, he does not have the same pathos, and I have never been emotionally moved by Parolis. Falstaff is endless, both in size and emotional life, but Parolis is surprisingly one-dimensional, a character invented to be the subject of a tiresome subplot in which he is revealed to be that which we already know he is. That being said, Parolis remains one of the windows into Shakespeare's theme, as he proves in his very first scene with Helena. Are you meditating on virginity? Aye. You have some stain of soldier in you. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Man is enemy to virginity. How may we barricade it against him? Keep him out. But he assails, and our virginity, though valiant in the defence, yet is weak, unfolds to us some warlike resistance. There is none. Man, sitting down before you, will undermine you and blow you up. Bless our poor virginity from underminers and blowers up. (laughs) Is there no military policy how virgins might blow up men? Virginity being blown down, man will quickly be blown up, marrying blowing him down again with the breach yourselves made. You lose your city. Well, it is not politic in the Commonwealth of Nature to preserve virginity. Loss of virginity is rationally increased, and there was never virgin got till virginity was first lost. That you were made of is metal to make virgins. Virginity by being once lost, maybe ten times found. By being ever kept, it is ever lost. It is too cold a companion away with... I will stand for it a little, though therefore I die a virgin. Parolis, of course, uses military language when discussing a lover's conquest. He teaches Helena a lesson which she does not forget. Much as militaries use subterfuge and skullduggery on their march to victory, so too will Helena find a way, through might, to force her way into marriage with Bertram. Shakespeare was forever experimenting, especially in the final thrust of his career, and Helena is no more Beatrice than she is King Henry VIII. If we have to find a parallel to Helena in the canon, it would be with Lady Macbeth. Both are ambitious social climbers who want to improve their station. Lady Macbeth resorts to bloodshed, but Helena is surrounded by much different circumstances and has to make do with what she has. It is true that Helena begins the play as a young romantic, but while her love for Bertram is probably sincere, I'd suggest she'd be changing her mind if he was an impoverished youth. Marriage is the only way she can rise in society. Bertram is a logical choice, given that she has his mother's affections, and his father is far too dead to object. I think not on my father, and these great tears grace his remembrance more than those I shed for him. What was he like? I have forgot him. My imagination carries no favor in but Bertram's. I am undone. There is no living, none, if Bertrand be away. 
fact, we're all one, that I should love a bright particular star and think to wed it. He is so above me. In his bright radiance and collateral light must I be comforted, not in his sphere. The ambition in my love thus plagues itself. The hind that would be mated by the lion must die for love. The ambition of my love is an interesting turn of phrase. It seems to betray Helena's true intent. For Helena, ambition and love are intertwined. When she offers to cure the king's fistula, he asks what she would like in return. The poor doctor's daughter could ask for wealth or some other reward that might help her attain respectability, but because she is unable to separate ambition from love, she can think of only one thing she wants more than anything in the world. Sweet practicer, thy physic I will try, that ministers thine own death. If I die... If I break time, or flinch in property of what I spoke, unpitied let me die, and well-deserved. Not helping, death's my fee. But if I help, what do you promise me? Make thy demand. But will you make it even? I, by my scepter, my hopes of heaven. Then shalt thou give me, with thy kingly hand, what husband in thy power I will command. Exempted be from me the arrogance to choose from force the royal blood of France, my low and humble name to propagate with any branch or image of thy state. But such a one, thy vassal, whom I know is free for me to ask, thee to bestow. Here is my hand. The premise is observed. Thy will by my performance shall be served. Shakespeare could have chosen a mysterious, undisclosed ailment, but he instead chooses to get hyper-specific. The king suffers from an anal fistula, a condition that is usually cured by surgical means. Given this, it's a wonder that Shakespeare has Helena effect her cure offstage. He usually liked putting his violence on stage. In any case, the cure works and the king recovers, at which point he offers Helena her reward. It is here where this complicated play begins to turn. Rather than pick Bertram right away, Helena plays a little game, moving from one lord to the next to receive their assurance that they would marry her if she asked. Sir, will you hear my suit? And granted. <laughs> Thanks, sir. All the rest is mute. The honour, sir, that flames in your fair eyes Before I speak too threateningly replies Love, make your fortunes twenty times above Her that so wishes and her humble love No better, if you please My wish receive, which great love grant And so I take my leave Be not afraid that I your hand should take I'll never do you wrong for your own sake Blessing upon your vows and in your bed, find fairer fortune, if you ever wed. You are too young, too happy, and too good to make yourself a son out of my blood. Fair one, I think not so. Helena must know that Bertram will want to turn her down, and that her only chance of success is to shame him. The four lords she approaches are all willing to do their duty and marry her if that's what she wants. Helena is gambling that Bertram will do the same. This is all good and well, but it also suggests that Helena wants to marry Bertram even though she knows he doesn't want to marry her. A woman who only cares about love wouldn't do this. One who is ambitious, on the other hand, might decide that something as silly as love can wait. Helena isn't wrong to gamble on Bertram obeying the king. Like the wily Parolis, Bertram is interested in power and glory. 
His greatest wish is to find it in war, a thought he expresses when the king makes him stay behind while the army goes to Italy. Oh, my sweet lord, that you will stay behind us. It is not his fault, the spark. Oh, it is brave wars. Most admirable, I've seen those wars. I am commanded here. I kept a coil with too young, and the next year, and tis too early. And thy mind stand to it, boy, steal away bravely. I shall stay here, the force to a smock, creaking my shoes on the plain masonry till honour be bought up, and no sword worn but one to dance with. By heaven, I'll steal away. Ambitious as he is, Bertram is also rash and impatient. If he was smarter, he'd spend a few months getting into the king's good graces rather than defy his wishes right away and plot to escape. But that really isn't his style. Bertram is supercilious, fawning over the king when he arrives in Paris, and caring nothing for him the moment the king leaves the room. When the moment of truth comes for Helena, she expects Bertram to do his duty, but we know that duty and obedience are not exactly traits which Bertram has. Shakespeare then sets up the first half of his play establishing this tension. Helena is concocting a scheme whose success relies on the notion that Bertram will obey the king without question, but we know before she does that Bertram has little regard for the king's wishes. And so, when the crucial scene arrives, we enter it one step ahead of Helena, and when she plays her trump card, we already know that things will not go as planned. I dare not say I take you, but I give me and my service ever whilst I live into your guiding power. This is the man. Why then, young Bertram, take her, she's thy wife. My wife, my liege. Mm -hmm. I shall beseech your highness in such a business, give me leave to use the help of mine own eyes. Knowest thou not, Bertram, what she has done for me? Yes, my good lord, but never hope to know why I should marry her. Thou knowest she has raised me from my sickly bed. What follows it, my lord, to bring me down must answer for your raising? I know her well. She had a breeding at my father's charge, a poor physician's daughter, my wife. Disdain rather corrupt me ever. The popular interpretation is that Helena is much like that other Helena, the one in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now there, if you'll recall, young Helena loves Demetrius and pursues him despite his mockery. Here, another Helena appears to do the same, clinging to her dream of Bertram, even as he insults her in open court. Now no one to my mind has ever explained what Shakespeare had against girls named Helena that he had to give them such unhappy love lives. But the similarity of the two characters is extraordinary. Both love someone who doesn't love them back, and both are perfectly happy to marry that person nonetheless. Demetrius, you'll recall, is still under the spell of the love potion at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream. As for the second Helena, she doesn't have the advantage of fairies and magic potions. She has to endure Bertram's rejection before all the nobles and the king, after which she tries to back away. What should be said? If thou can slight this creature as a maid, I can create the rest. Virtue and she is her own dower, honor and wealth from me. I cannot love her nor will strive to do. Thou wrongs thyself if I should strive to choose. That you are well restored, my lord, I'm glad. And let the rest go. My honors at the stake. Some might say that Helena is still scheming here. She knows that the king's honor is at stake, but this doesn't quite gel with the rest of the story. 
Helena is a schemer, but she is one who gets caught in the machinations of her own scheme. Like Lady Macbeth, she sets a plot into motion and then must suffer the consequences once the plan doesn't go the way she thought. The king sees that his honor is at stake. He forces Bertram to take Helena's hand in marriage. Helena isn't given any lines during this fateful moment, so it's left to the actress to convey that she has fallen victim to the oldest irony in the storyteller's handbook. In other words, be careful what you wish for. She wanted Bertram, and now she has him. She has her love, she has satisfied her ambition, but at what cost? Her husband has been forced into marriage rather than choosing it for himself. There are no happy endings here, and Helena comes to recognize this in her very next scene with Bertram, which is heartbreaking when you see it as the scene during which a young woman discovers that happily ever after isn't all she hoped it would be. Sir, I can nothing say but that I am your most obedient servant. Come, come, no more of that. And ever shall, with true observance, seek to eke out that wherein toward me my homely stars have failed to equal my great... Fortune. Let that go. My haste is very great. Farewell. High home. Pray, sir. Your pardon? Well, what would you say? I am not worthy of the wealth I owe, nor dare I say tis mine, and yet it is. But like a timorous thief, most fain would steal what law does vouch mine own. What would you have? Something, and scarce so much. Nothing, indeed. I would not tell you what I would, my lord. Faith, yes. Strangers and foes do sunder and not kiss. I pray you stay not, but in haste to horse. I shall not break your bidding, good my lord. Productions that try to portray Bertram as a cad run into a problem here. Bertram may be shallow and unlikable, but does that mean he deserves to be railroaded into marriage? Bertram is the victim of Helena's ambitious scheming, and his response, while hardly chivalrous, is at least understandable. He escapes, as we always knew he would, and goes off to war in Italy. Helena's guilt is palpable. She has driven him away, and must bear the burden of its results. Till I have no wife, I have nothing in France. Nothing in France until he has no wife. Thou shalt have none, Rosilian, none in France. Then hast thou all again. Poor Lord, is't I that chase thee from thy country and expose those tender limbs of thine to the event of the non-sparing war? And is it I that drive thee from the sportive court, where thou wast shot at with fair eyes to be the mark of smoky muskets? Oh, you leaden messengers, that ride upon the violent speed of fire, fly with false aim, move the still-piecing air that sings with piercing, do not touch, my lord. Whoever shoots at him, I set him there. Whoever charges on his forward breast, I am the caitiff that do hold him to it. And though I kill him not, I am the cause his death was so affected. In Helena, Shakespeare gives us a romantic who is forced to acknowledge the consequences of her own romanticism. Later, while in disguise, she will give a melancholy report on herself to Diana and the widow. You came, I think, from France. I did so. 
Here you shall see a countryman of yours that has done worthy service. His name, I pray you, the Count Rossilian. Know you such a one? But by the ear, that he is most nobly of him. His face I know not. Whatsoever he is, he's bravely taken here. He stole from France, as tis reported, for the king had married him against his liking. Think you it is so? I, surely, mere the truth. I know his lady. There is a gentleman that serves the Count, reports but coarsely of her. What's his name? Monsieur Parolas. Ah, oh, I believe with him. In argument of praise or to the worth of the great Count himself, she is too mean to have her name repeated. All her deserving is a reserved honesty, and that I have not heard examined. Alas, poor lady. Helena is ashamed of herself, which is why she flees both France and Bertram. She does not pursue him because she knows it would be of little use. She no longer feels she deserves him, for she has come to understand that age-old lesson, if you love someone, you set it free, you don't get a king to force them to marry you. Helena's attempt to seek redemption for what she has done to Bertram leads her to take a pilgrimage to Spain. In other words, she decides to follow in the footsteps of Isabella in Measure for Measure. She devotes herself to a holy journey, as she explains in a letter left for Bertram's mother. Read it again. I'm St. Jaquis Pilgrim, thither gone. Ambitious love hath so in me offended that barefoot plod I the cold ground upon with sainted vow my faults to have amended. Did you hear those words? Ambitious love. Again, Helena is confusing love and ambition. The convenience of plot takeover here, Helena, on the course of her pilgrimage, stumbles into Italy and then upon the one house which houses people who know what has happened to Bertram. It's hard to assume that Helena came to Italy by accident, for she knew Bertram was here, but the fact that she just happens to meet the mother of the girl Bertram's now courting strains credibility, even for Shakespeare. Nonetheless, that's what we have. Helena learns that in addition to becoming a hero, Bertram is attempting to seduce Diana. It is at this point that Helena suddenly changes course. Instead of continuing on to Spain, she reveals her true identity and conscripts Diana in a plot to win Bertram back. Why does Helena do this? Was her story of being a pilgrim always a farce? Had she always intended to come to Italy and drag her husband home? I suppose this would be up for actors to decide, but the most sympathetic explanation is that Helena knows she is responsible for Bertram. Technically married, he would now be a poor choice for any young woman. No marriage could be legitimate, which means given the mores of the time, any virgin who yielded to him would then be tainted forever. Given all this, what choice does Helena have but to force Bertram to accept his husbandly duties? We already know she accepts responsibility for driving Bertram to Italy. Why would she not also accept responsibility for any emotional carnage he wrecks while he is there? Helena is again facing the consequences of her actions. In trying to win Bertram, she drove him away. In driving him away, she put impressionable young women at risk. Diana is wise to Bertram's shenanigans, but the next girl might not be so clever. And so Helena throws herself on her sword. She sacrifices her pilgrimage to ensure that no other girl is taken down an unfortunate path. Shakespeare would have done us all, not to mention the play, a great service if he had included some speech in which Helena explains her motivations. Perhaps he did, and it's been lost to time. As is, he has left directors to intuit it on their own, which, as we know, is always a dangerous game. Bertram 
scoundrel that he is, leaves behind an impossible task for Helena to complete if he is ever to return to her. She must bear his child and wear a certain ring that he has in his possession. Getting the ring is easy compared with getting the child, which requires us to return to that disquieting plot device we saw in Measure for Measure. Again, we have the bed trick. Helena replaces Diana in bed, and in doing so, commits a gross act of sexual assault. She has little choice, of course, how else is she to satisfy Bertram's impossible demand, which makes the entire moment at once rancid and heartbreaking. Consider it. Helena loved Bertram. In trying to win him, she drove him away. In penance, she vowed to give up society and become a pilgrim. Now she is in bed with him, and he thinks she's someone else. From an emotional standpoint, the entire moment is as horrific as any of the bloodshed in Titus Andronicus. Is it any wonder Shakespeare has it happen offstage? And is it any wonder that the plot point ensures that the entire play leaves a very bad taste in our mouths whenever it is staged? From here until the end, poor Helena has no choice but to see her plan through. She fakes her death and returns to France. When she finally reveals herself to Bertram, it is with the knowledge that they have both been doomed to be together because their ambitions and passions have overruled their moral code. Each of them begin the play as schemers, and by the end of the play, they are chained together as a consequence of their fates. They both seem to acknowledge this, and while they try to make the best of their circumstance, Helena is not very optimistic about their chances. No, my good lord, tis but the shadow of a wife. You see the name and not the thing. Both. Both. Oh, pardon. Oh, my good lord, when I was like this maid, I found you wondrous kind. There is your ring. And look, you, here's your letter. This it says, when from my finger you can get this ring and are by me with child, this is done. Will you be mine now? You are doubly one. <coughs> if she, my liege, can make me know this clearly, I'll love her dearly, ever, ever dearly. <laughs> If it appear not plain and prove untrue, deadly divorce step between me and you. It's a nice little irony that the king offers Diana the same choice he gave Helena, instructing her to choose a husband from the assembled lords. Shakespeare doesn't tell us what Diana decides, but I sort of hope Helena whispered in her ear that she would be better to run all the way back to Italy. If there's a moral in All's Well That Ends Well, it's that nothing good ever comes out of a forced marriage. Given that this was the common way of romance in Shakespeare's day, All's Well That Ends Well might have been more provocative than Shakespeare intended. The message would probably be better received today, but as I said, we aren't interested in letting the play convey it. Conventional disappointment with the play stems from our attempts to play it as another As You Like It, Much Ado About Nothing, or Twelfth Night. But Shakespeare, at the time of writing, had long since left such easy romances behind. He was well in the twilight of his career, and he wanted to toy with the conventions. All's Well That Ends Well is a play concerned with what happens after the happily ever after, when the romantic comedy doesn't go quite the way you thought. Even the title is a stab at romantic ideals. Is all truly well just because it ended with a wedding? In the case of Bertram and Helena, almost probably not. 
And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. Well, given its lack of popularity, All's Well That Ends Well tends to only get produced by people who are determined to produce the entire canon, which is how we get the BBC's 1981 televised production. Directed by Elijah Moshinsky, it's deathly slow, but Shakespearean beggars can't exactly be choosers. The production presents a traditional interpretation of the play and of the central lovers, which is to say that it continues the pesky habit of trying to play this tragedy as a romantic comedy filled with lovers whose happy ending is a cause for celebration. Now, I can't really recommend this film for anyone except the most devoted. You'd really be better off to turn to the Archangel recordings or the version performed by the National Theatre in 2009. Shown in theaters and then released on DVD, this is an energetic production that translates pretty well onto film. Again, they try to make Bertram into a romantic hero who is deserving of his Helena, but I've long ago despaired of ever seeing anyone perform this play properly, and I guess you should too. People seem determined to play this as a romantic comedy, so you have little choice but to sit back and enjoy the ride. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, Shakespeare's nihilism reaches its zenith with what may be his most glorious and despairing work. It's time for King Lear. If you want to know more information about me or what I do with my time, please check out my website at www.joelfishbane.net. You can find all the episodes of Shakespeare and Bard and information about how to get your hands on my book, The Thunder of Giants. Available from St. Martin's Press, it's a story of two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. 27 plays down, 11 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play. Let's go and cough through it. <laughs>